I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the letter of James. As we continue our study, we will be looking today at, verses, at chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is one of those times where uh, people like Martin Luther point to these apparent transitions here, these abrupt transitions, and, and it's why Martin Luther said things like it was thrown together, together chaotically. And it's true that James does not have the, the tight linear logic internally. Uh, in, in Paul, you can see his, his train of thought going and he's continually streaming together ideas with various conjunctions. Therefore, or because, or so that, or, or whatever. And so you can see the natural progression of thought. Whereas James doesn't do that. But contra Martin Luther, and it's always, you need to be, he, you know, he, was, he was a titan, but he was not imperfect. He was not, he was not infallible, uh, certainly not. But it was not thrown together chaotically, and I believe there's some internal wording here, some word plays and some things that show that even though he, James was not the kind of thinker that Paul was, nonetheless, this is not just haphazardly thrown together. He's actually making a point. And so, let's look at what James, the brother of our Lord, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has for us in verses 5 through 11. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for these words. Lord, we thank you for having saved James and for having inspired him to write this book. And we thank you for his plain dealing style, for his straightforward way of speaking that cuts through and catches us off guard since we're accustomed to hearing spin and, and flattery from people. Lord, help us to believe, help us to live, most of all, help us to love. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters. So we're in the midst of a, of a big, long section here at the beginning of chapter 1 in which the ground is being laid, the stage is being set. We are called to consider life in its various forms, in its various situations, in its various chapters, we are called to consider all of this life a training ground with the various circumstances we find ourselves in, the various life situations we can find ourselves in. We can find all of that to be, in one way, shape, or form, a trial, a test, a situation, a means, an instrument, through and by which the Lord works out our salvation so that we are sanctified. And these circumstances are the sandpaper. They are the, they are the, uh, the weights at the gym, so to speak, where we are building up our faith and being made holy. And so the gist of last week's message from last week's verses 2 through 4, is that the first verse, count it all joy, provides us the attitudinal context for our life. We are to approach this with joy. And then the rest of those verses, the rest of 2, 3, and 4, provide the rationale because what God is doing in and through our circumstances, with the end result being Maturity. So we're good Calvinists, and we find our Calvinism reinforced by things such as this. God is using our circumstances. God is in sovereign control. He orders our affairs, and he brings into our lives the things we need to mature us. Okay, we get that, and that is true, right, and good. But I, my question to you, brothers and sisters, you know it, but to go back to verse 2, do you count it all joy when you experience it? We know it. We profess it. But do we live it? And now you're at the heart of the book of James. We know it. We profess it. But are we living it? Do we live our lives in the midst of our circumstances as if we are truly apprehending and clinging to and trusting in the fact that God is working in and through these circumstances to make us holy and that his purpose in bringing forth every circumstance and trial you face is for your good. It is an expression of his love to and for you. And so it's not that we rejoice at the circumstance. I don't say, yay, I got cancer, yeah. But am I able, if a diagnosis comes, to say, even now I will rejoice. Because even this cannot separate me from the love of God, but is rather an instrument of the loving God to make me more like Jesus. That's hard. That is hard. There are so many circumstances in life that can come our way that cause us to pause. 
And so the question is, we know it, we confess it, but do we live it? Do you count it all joy? And, and, and that's where it comes to today's passage. You see, there are the truths we know, and then there is the need for those truths to be applied. And what's the Bible term for truth applied? The ability to apply knowledge and truth to life. Wisdom. And so, at the end of verse 4, James presents us a picture of what it's going to look like when your maturity has been realized. You will be perfect, lacking nothing. That's what he says, lacking nothing. But then in verse 5, he ties it to verse 4 with that word, lack. So he's just given you a picture of what your maturity is going to look like. Eventually, there's going to come the day when you lack nothing. But for now, verse 5, verse five pops in, if any of you lacks wisdom, because it is wisdom that we need, biblical wisdom that we need in order for us to understand and live the truth he's just said in verse 2. Biblical wisdom can be construed in one of two ways, sometimes both at the same time. There's wisdom can just be kind of a shorthand word for being a very well-educated person. For example, we're told that Moses was, was, uh, was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That doesn't mean that he studied philosophy, though perhaps. It, it, it means he studied everything. He was well-educated. He was not a stupid man. He was not an uneducated man. Okay, it says Jesus grew in wisdom. He, he learned things. He learned, he learned that two plus two equals four. He learned an alpha from a beta from a gamma. He, he, he learned how to make things. Okay, so that means, but more specifically, more commonly, when we are speaking about wisdom in the Bible, we, we are talking about the fact that it's the ability to apply truth to life. And it's not just any truth. Specifically, biblical wisdom takes us from this, this, uh, from this naive, ignorant, foolish, just flailing out and about with the, with the winds and the, and the wilds, and it takes us into a full-orbed picture of a person who has been well-shaped. Learning starts with facts. You need to first learn facts about God and, and his word and the world around. But then it moves from those apprehension of facts to the ability to synthesize ideas and data, to analyze and compare and so you develop a comprehensive picture. But then you learn how to apply that truth to the situations you face. 
And brothers and sisters, that is what he's calling us to if we are to, as verse 2 says, count it all joy. It takes practical wisdom, first of all, to even be able to see life within that Christocentric picture that all things are working towards his glory and our good and your circumstances are instruments to bring about your sanctification. It takes, it takes wisdom and insight to understand that, but it takes the practical know-how as you are going through life because don't forget, though God is sovereign, he sovereignly works through your choices. And I've said, I can't tell you how many times I've said this and I said it I said it till I was blue in the face as a chaplain. Life is hard. It's harder if you're stupid. <laughs> okay? You're going through life. And let's assume that we all in good faith are wanting to persevere. We're wanting to make Jesus look good. We want to grow and, and all that stuff. But a situation comes up. What do I do? What's the best course of action? What's the action that will give Jesus maximal glory? What, what, what about how I respond to the fact that sometimes my trials come from my own dumb decisions? How do I act in that moment? What do we do? And so because of this need for practical wisdom then, there's a great many people going through life, there's a great many of us going through life, acknowledging that God is sovereign, acknowledging that I need to make wise decisions and I need wisdom, but still failing to be able to have the matrix that sees, as we are commanded in verse 2, the joy in it all. Is your life devoid of the joy that comes from knowing that God is lovingly leading you? We need wisdom for that. We need skill in interpreting and applying. We need knowledge and insight. Wow. How do we get that? James here, he says it's really straightforward. According to James right here, it's, I mean, it's, we, we read this and we think this is simplistic. You need wisdom, what do you do? Just ask God. And you'll give it. I mean, that, that, that's what he says. If, uh, all, all of this, uh, all of this uh, who gives generously to all without approach, that's a parenthetical statement. Let me just read the statement without the parenthetical statement. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God and it will be given him. Straightforward and simplistic. And so we can say that. Oh, that, there's got to be, there's a catch. It's one of those Bible things where there's a catch, where, there, uh, you know, there's the caveat. Uh, uh, wh what do we, well, this passage then is going to spend the rest of these verses answering the question, how do we obtain wisdom by teaching us a couple things about God and challenging us with a couple things about ourselves. First, what does this, what does James teach us about God here? Is James really that simple? Is he a simpleton? 
Or is he making a straightforward statement based upon what he knows of God's character? And of course, this is church, so you know the answer is the latter. It's what he knows of God's character. And, and it's right here, that parenthetical comment that I left out. That's where James provides the basis for this seemingly simplistic idea that if you lack wisdom, go to God and he will give it. What does this parenthetical comment say? Ask God who, who gives generously to all without reproach. This passage teaches us, this, this parenthetical statement in verse 5 teaches us three beautiful things about God. He gives generously to all without reproach. Okay, first, God is gracious all the time. It is God's nature to give. In, in fact, I love how the, how the Greek is constructed so that way it, it would come across awkwardly in English. So the English Bible translates it properly. But still, I think it's pretty cool how the Greek does it. It's the give, ask of the giving God. It is God's character to give. He's not just the God who gives, he's the giving God. He is gracious all the time. There is never a moment, never a time when God says, I'm in a bad mood, not today. I'm not particularly charitable in the moment. Come back at the end of the year. He does not say that. He gives. And how does he give? Second, he's generous all of the time. And, and, and the, the, the Greek word for generous is so rich. His bounty is unrestricted. Generous is correct, but the idea behind it is one of single-minded attention and focus. As if to say that the point of the giving is to make sure that the attention is on you, to make sure that you have what you need. It is not a case where it's, okay, I can spare a dollar here, here's some change. It's not a case of, oh, how much do you actually need? And I'm not going to give you one cent more. It conveys lavishness because his focus and attention is on you. Which is why that verb, that adverb, in its noun form, is the word for our, how single-minded our focus should be on Christ. And how a slave's focus should be on his master in Ephesians 6. The word conveys God's single-minded devotion and focus on you because he loves you and wants to lavish you. So wait a minute, Ben. How come I'm not floating on a mountain on a sea of $100 bills then? Isn't that kind of the question Tevye asked? Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? Remember that? I'm not Wes. Okay. We think, 
in our sinful, fallen, selfish way that a loving God who is generous would just make sure that our lives were ease, would make sure that I never had any, any, any and I had all, more than I could imagine and just use, that I could literally swim around in a swimming pool filled up with $100 bills. That, I hope you hear how myopic that sounds just coming out of my mouth. God gives us lavishly everything we need to fulfill the purposes he has for us. And he stands generously, ready to give you whatever you need. All the time. God is never stingy. He never holds out on you. He will never hold out on you. He will give you what you need. Because he is generous. He gives all the time. He's generous all the time. And third, he's welcoming all the time. He gives generously to all without reproach. You know what it, it would imply if he, if, it says, if he didn't do it without reproach? You know, that would be implying that, that he's holding it over our heads or that he's holding something over our heads or that he's, why are you bothering me again? Or something like that. He doesn't. Your God, your Father, always welcomes you into his presence. He's better than us. There are plenty of times when I don't want to be bothered with my children's complaints. There are plenty of times when, when I'm sure you're afraid to take your request to your significant other or your parent or your boss because you're not sure if, if they're in the right mood. You don't have to worry about being reproached by your father. Why? Well, to go back theologically, it's because of Jesus. Jesus has so fully satisfied the demands of God when it says he is the propitiation for our sins, propitiation is the word that means not only has he assuaged God's anger at our sins, but he has made him favorably disposed towards us. So when God looks at you, he looks at someone who, on whom the perfect righteousness of Christ has been applied and all the bounties and glories of heaven are then at your disposal. You are one of his beloved sons or daughters because of Jesus. And so his character then towards you, as revealed towards you, is one of gracious, generous welcome all the time. That is why you can pray in confidence for wisdom and know that he will give it. Well, Ben, I've prayed it and I don't have it. understand that verse 5 holds forth for us a beautiful truth about God. Verses 6 through 8 hold forth a gut check warning about us. Verses 6 through 8 hold out the possibility that my own heart is not as single-mindedly devoted to God 
as perhaps his is towards me. Verses 6 through 8 hold out the possibility that our hearts are divided. Verses 6 through 8 tell us that if we pray, we should do so in faith and not with doubt. Verse 6, in verse 6, faith would be our unwavering confidence and commitment to God and thus understand that he indeed will give us what he says. Doubt. In our age, we think of doubt as something that's intellectual. I'm not quite sure. No, this word is a lot more visceral. It's a lot more practical. This word means to be between two opinions. It means you're undecided. Someone who doubts, someone who is double-minded, some commentators get get it wrong. When they refer to that person as being double-minded, they construe it as if he's being duplicitous, two-faced, or something like that. No, that's not what he's going for here. He's going for someone who's trying to have one foot in, in the kingdom and one foot in the world, who's, who's trying to decide, am I going to be on the Lord's side, or, 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 or is this too much, a little too much? Undecided. The demands of the kingdom are great. In one sense. Indeed, is it not Jesus who says, Whoever would follow me must take up his cross? Doesn't Jesus strike at our idols when he tells the rich young man that he has to sell everything? Indeed, does not the kingdom of God demand that we? Pursue the kingdom at all costs. To seek the kingdom before everything else. Before life, liberty, love, family, everything. And so when James says this here, he's not just pulling out something new. He's he's pulling together the things that Jesus was saying all throughout his ministry. So, when you pray, when you pray for wisdom, are you really sure you want it? You know, there's a joke about how don't pray for patience because he might give it. And, 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 and we say that joke because we kind of know what patience would, patience comes through having difficult, and we don't really want that, do we? How sure are we that we want the things of the kingdom? Have you tasted and seen? Do you you not only know in your head, but know in your heart, know with your hands and your feet that the Savior is all you need? And if you have Jesus, you have everything. If so, then you have and you have the key to praying with single-minded devotion and know that the Lord will honor that request. But perhaps you are in life having divided allegiances and you're not quite sure. Maybe in your mind you say, 
But again, James is not about what you're saying in your head. He's, he's worried about what your actions are saying about what your heart is doing. And so he then provides us with an example. He goes back to providing us with an example of how if you apply this wisdom to life, you can have the matrix to see through a Christ-like lens and take joy in the trials that some might not think of as trials. In verses 9 to 11, we have an object lesson. He takes things from the spectrums of life. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Okay, so the word brother there modifies both lowly and rich. So right here he's talking about Christians who are lowly, and that, and that word implies more than just economic poverty. It's someone who is low on the social totem pole. It includes economic poverty, but think of the outcasts, the rebel, the whatever, just the, the scum of the earth according to their worldview. That's the lowly, and the rich are not only economically wealthy, they are so, the social cultural haves. Okay, so he's talking about Christians and he says, let them boast. And boast is just a strengthened form of rejoice or exult, which then takes us all the way back to verse 2. That's what it looks like to have joy in all circumstances, to boast in their circumstance. The poor in his exaltation, because it takes wisdom to see takes the wisdom of God to see that lowly social outcast position as a form of exaltation. It takes wisdom to see that. The earthly eyes don't see it that way. But notice, it's like he gets that, that we understand the concept of inverted expectations and, and how we can see that, that, that the poor might be Okay, we're going to be rich in the heaven. Okay, so he, he spends one clause talking about the poor boasting and exaltation. He spends the next verse and a half, though, talking about how the rich brother should boast in his what? Humiliation. Because all the riches are going to fade away, and then at the end when it says in verse 11, so also will the rich man fade away, that right there, the rich man, is just a generic term for anyone who's, he's not talking about the rich believers here will fade away. It's basically, brothers and sisters who are rich, you know because of the wisdom given to you that riches account for nothing and riches fade away. Rich people have their problems and they come to nothing. And it's hard for a rich person to see their riches as a trial. But do you see how with affluence comes such an easy opportunity to forget about God and to forget your dependency and to, to forget your, your temporariness? And so with wisdom, though, comes the ability to see this is temporary. And it's not that I'm elevated above. The world may be telling me that I'm elevated socially above all these people, but I'm not. They're my brothers. They're my sisters. And so with all this temporary stuff then, 
instead of telling myself that I'm laying up some sort of great treasure for myself, I can then see how it's freed for kingdom purposes. Wisdom from God, brothers and sisters, makes the difference and it allows us to shape our understanding of the world and apply biblical theological truths to our lives. We need it. And thankfully, God gives it. The question, brothers and sisters, is simply this. Do you believe? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word. We thank you for James and for his letter. We ask that we would be single-minded and not double-minded. That we would pursue the kingdom with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Grant, O God, that we would never pursue the world. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.